Hello and welcome to another episode of the Shock Doctors podcast. I'm Jim Smith. I'm Matt Jern, Casey. And we are the Shock Doctors. In this episode, we're going to be discussing Talk to Me, where there's a spooky hand that does spooky shit. Yeah, I mean, it's a possession movie of a kind. Mainly what the hand does is induce people to harm themselves. And there's, outside of the kind of initial party game pitch where there's a a bit of demonic jabbering the movie is refreshingly light on would-be pazuzuisms i would say Mm. uh which is to my liking but also maybe to the movie's detriment because as much as i deride subpar pazuzu impressions the ideal solution is not to just dispense with the attempt entirely you know but to just have a good one (laughs) right (laughs) and i know that's asking a lot and if you've listened to the program in the past you know that i am very quick to turn up my nose at any attempt that doesn't pass my smell test but i don't know i found it a little thin Uh, lean would be the more flattering way to spin that but i did find it kind of slight i don't know if that was your feeling as well I was, yeah, I was a little bit disappointed. I tried not to dive too far into the hype, but at the end of the day, I was hit with some of it, and it's another one of those, like, this is the scariest movie I've seen in years. I'm like, eh, no. No, yeah, there there was one moment that made me squirm, and it was a pretty significant squirm at that. I don't want to dismiss it entirely, but I don't know. I, I fear that elevated horror fatigue is coming for you and for i faster than for a lot of other folks and this is gonna sound like i'm just tooting my own horn and maybe i am tooting yours too but we've (laughs) (laughs) seen so many horror movies from so many sub-genres and micro-genres so many different (laughs) eras of history that it's not to say that our standards are, are higher Maybe that's the case, but it's hard to just be strictly hierarchical about these things. I don't know. I just, I just think there's a been there, done that feeling that has been afflicting me for like more than a year now on the podcast. I felt very old and jaded. I can't remember <laughs> when I was first struck by this. It was upwards of 15 20 episodes ago now i'd be willing to bet some critically acclaimed horror movie that just did nothing for me talk to me sort of did almost nothing for me but there isn't really that much wrong with it so no i fear that i may just be i feel like um what's the south park episode i can't even remember which of the kids it is who who goes into the depression spiral where he just sees everyone like vomiting diarrhea everywhere (laughs) <laughs> you remember he's like he goes to the movies and there's a trailer that's like a duck who's the president and it's, it's just everything just looks like i'm pretty sure it's stan yeah i think it, stan gets depressed he just out of nowhere everything everywhere he looks just looks like crap garbage uh <laughs> i'm not quite that deep into my own i don't know disaffectedness but it, it, there I, there the, something is happening when a movie that is of this caliber just objectively a fine film can't penetrate my shell my whatever it is my my fucking force field that i've been saddled with for some reason i 
Again, I, I, should, I, should, I should be like a pig in shit, and I'm not with this A24 horror renaissance. So, a couple things on that, and maybe this is post-break business, but fuck it. I don't give a well, this, shit. This is, this this is meta-podcast business. It doesn't fit neatly into the pre- or post-break. It's more I, of, I a, guess that's fair. of an omni-problem. <laughs> yeah. So, on the one hand... I don't know. I mean, I guess this film fits somewhat into the elevated horror framework, quote unquote. I think it's a little more down to earth than that. It's not quite so high minded. I mean, don't get me wrong. The movie like looks good like an elevated horror movie tends yeah. to do, you know, visually. Well, but... I think I think cinematographically it does get there. And it's also more than weepy enough, at least in the third act. That's true. But I do get what you're saying. It does try to bring a certain grindhouse flair to it and a certain old school nastiness. It's not that highbrow in that right. in terms of the actual thrills on offer. Yeah. And the other thing about it is much of the time over the last however many months it's been where you've been feeling this way and I to a certain extent have been feeling this way too, we were saying this particularly during like the Scream Six and Mithrigan episodes, where yeah, we just couldn't fuck, yeah, right, we just couldn't fucking understand why these movies that we frankly didn't think were even good at all were getting these rave reviews. And this movie is definitely a different phenomenon. I mean, it might be part of the same overall problem we're confronting you and I, but this is a different thing in that. It is a movie that I think has a fair amount of merit and also at least a scare here or there that at least got to me. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. I I felt kind of empty at the end of it. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I just need more fucking Will Butrin or something. I don't know. But (laughs) it's this bizarro world thing. And I feel like I say this once every two or three episodes now, but horror movies used to be unfairly maligned. They used to get such a bad rap, and the opposite is true now. And I don't think it's just the case that I like rooting for the underdog, because I, mm-hmm. I do frequently find myself, when the hot takes are flying back and forth, I do often feel like kind of a film centrist in this kind of shell sure. way. You know, I like most if not all the overwhelming majority let's say of the of the canonized classics and that's true of horror movies like any other genre and it's just this recent glut of arty horror that i've kind of soured on are either they're just standout examples you rattled off several of them of, of movies that i yeah just feel nothing about that i'm just kind of prone to poo-pooing you would think that i i don't know maybe it's just my usual Anton ego thing, you know, like if I don't love it, I won't swallow. (laughs) I I think is the line. (laughs) Anyway, talk to me is about a spooky hand. It looks, um, I believe it's embalmed. Uh, Some of the time it looks almost more like paper mache. It's so kind of pallid and and artificial looking. I think the, the story that they tell the pair of teens that, are actually the bearers of the hand, as it were. It's an embalmed hand that was then covered in ceramic. That tracks, okay. So yeah, it's it's just the shell 
that we see is ceramic, and it's got a bunch of shit written on it, and we don't really get that many close looks at the text on the hand, and the few times we do, I didn't really pick up on anything in particular. Yeah, well, speaking of not picking up on things, and this is probably why I missed that uh, explanation of the hand's plasticity, the Australian accents were conspiring with the subpar quality of the version of the movie that I saw, the pirated version, to give some of the dialogue, especially off-screen dialogue, a Peanuts adult quality that was hard to circumvent at times. So some of the finer points of the lore might have been lost on me. Good day. Wah, 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 yeah, wah, 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 wah. Crikey. <laughs> wah, wah, shrimp on the Barbie. Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> Okay, I'm not going to do that all day. But yeah, so there's this spooky hand, and basically the premise is that as sort of a party trick, these teens get together and they put the hand on a table, and one of them sits in a chair by the table, gets strapped in, takes the hand like, you know, a handshake sort of grip, and says, talk to me, and I think every time, I'm not positive, but typically... A spirit will manifest in front of them. Nobody else can see it, but they can. And then they say, I let you in. And then there's a lot of writhing and noises. Yeah, and, and that's when the possession kicks in. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing as part of the party trick is for safety reasons, because the spirits might want to stay if you go beyond this. They always cut it off at 90 seconds until, of course, they don't. Anyway, why don't you uh, take it away here? We open with a prologue that, in all humility, I did not really successfully connect to the plot proper. So much of this movie is set in and around parties. There's a kind of prankish, fraternity-hazing atmosphere to the whole premise that, you know, Mm -hmm. this is how the demons are ushered into our reality by, you know, Zoomers making TikTok videos egging each other on. You know, we open at a party and this guy is looking for, I believe, his brother, according to Wikipedia, his brother Duckett. And he finds him and Duckett is thoroughly checked out, is kind of brooding, sitting on the edge of this bed shirtless. And Duckett, out of nowhere, stabs his brother. He's wielding a knife and then he turns the knife on himself in a most unnatural fashion. You know, he doesn't, like, slash his wrist or even his throat. He buries it in his head, from what I remember. Yeah, and his, like, in his forehead. Just... Uh-huh. <laughs> so there's more than a whiff of demonic possession about that, and naturally the party disperses, title drop, and then we're introduced to our protagonist, who is Mia. She is a teenager who lost her mother in a purported suicide in the last year or two. Those waters are muddied a little later on, whether or not it was a suicide. Her, I hesitate to call it a save the cat moment because it's a good deal more ambiguous than that, and I respect that about it. She is driving at night with, is it Riley who's in the passenger seat? Yeah. Riley is the guy's name. He's the one who ultimately becomes the main vessel, the main possessed party for most of the movie. Yeah, it's her best friend's little brother. Right. And not that little, not like, you know. Right, just younger. Yeah. Like 
two or three years yeah, younger. Preteen or, or pubescent. And the two of them are out driving at night and they come upon a wounded kangaroo. Very Aussie. Yeah, grievously <laughs> wounded. Although my first reaction as a non-Aussie was to think that kangaroo could have seconds to live and could probably still annihilate all of them if they, if, <laughs> if they looked at it funny. You know, those animals don't fuck around to hop up and kick you to death. So they're debating what's to be done and they say that they should probably put it out of its misery meaning drive over its head or, or, you know, just barrel over it, which it looks like they're preparing to do. And then car screeches to a halt. Mia can't bring herself to do it. What are we to make of this? It's not very clear. The movie does not ever call back to this moment in the kind of hackneyed way that I was anticipating. I don't remember the demon ever using it to, like, twist the knife in her or, like, call her chicken shit. And there's never any flashback or parallel editing to indicate that it's some kind of foreshadowing. It sort of tells us a thing or two about the protagonist here. And it's neither a save the cat moment nor whatever the opposite of that would be. Because on the one hand, it probably would have been more merciful to put the kangaroo out of its misery. But on the other hand, the fact that she doesn't have that in her is also kind of, we can identify with that, that she's a little soft and therefore maybe not equipped to deal with the elevated horror that's on the horizon. Right. There's a brief callback to the kangaroo during the climax, but it's definitely, like you say, not a drawn out, you couldn't even kill the wounded kangaroo, Mm -hmm. you little bitch. (laughs) Sort of a... A zombie kangaroo never, like, hops out of her closet when she's having a nightmare and goes, like, you could have saved me, or (laughs) whatever. (laughs) Right. So we get into that party time atmosphere pretty quick. The whole movie seems to be striving for a sort of 2020s hip and happening coolness, like bodies, 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 or... I don't know, Zola, you know, like that kind of thing. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I haven't actually seen Zola. I have seen Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. We reviewed it. I like Talk to Me more than Bodies, 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 but they're both trafficking in the same kind of, what's the word I'm looking for, the same kind of Zoomer verisimilitude. Yeah, but I feel, and you know, I don't hang around with Zoomers, so maybe this is just an inaccurate perception but the Zoomer verisimilitude in this film seems a lot more grounded. Yeah. And Bodies, Bodies, Bodies is not. Now, the flip side, to give that film a modicum of credit, which I'm disinclined to do, but I will anyway, to be reasonable and fair. It's a very big idea. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. It's, uh, you know, it's supposed to be something of a satire, so it's all going to be high-key anyway. Yeah. Yeah, broad, but still, that was very like okay. I don't, I don't really buy this crap, even as a joke. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I basically bought it here, and I did not. I'm cranky and old enough that it would not be out of character for me to just be like, I, I got sick of these people after ten minutes. You know, fuck them. I don't care what happens to them. <laughs> and I never, I never got there because they did seem verisimilitudinous. They seemed basically grounded, like you said. Yeah. So somebody whips out the hand at a party and Mia volunteers for reasons known only to her and she is strapped into the chair nice and tight a little too tight for her liking she takes the hand talk to me I invite you in and then she gets this kind of inky black eyes and I don't this is 
like I indicated before we got into the plot rundown, these are the scenes when it's all still a big party where we get the most kazuzuing, but none of it particularly stands out to me. I remember that this initial possession, I believe it does exceed 90 seconds ever so slightly, which kind of leaves the door open a crack later on. And it ends with Mia saying, run, 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 run. And it escalates until she's basically yapping like a dog. Yeah, and this the latter half of her possessed monologue, and particularly the run, 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 is targeted at Riley, who's sort of finagled his way into hanging out with these older kids in the first place. The following day, there's another party, a smaller one, smaller get-together, where they break the hand out again, having not, you know, this fucking generation is so jaded. That's what kind of tickled me about it, is that, like, I think my favorite riff on this, or at least the first one that I remember ever being tickled by, was a movie we saw in theaters, and you probably know where I'm going with this. Paranormal Activity, The Marked Ones, did this sort of thing (laughs) the best, I would argue. And granted, that was like 2014-ish, so it was, if not ahead of the curve, then at least a little more timely, or a little more, I don't know, prescient is too lofty, but you take my point. Yeah. The guy, the main guy can do supernatural things for reasons that I no longer recall, but he's in proximity to demons and he's channeling their powers in some way. So he can levitate and do all kinds of cool shit, but nothing that showy. But he, you know, he gets it on film and posts it to YouTube and all of the comments just say fake and gay. Yeah. Fake and gay. (laughs) 12, 12 views, fake and gay. (laughs) So the idea is that, even if something like that were real and were really out there, it would get buried by the algorithm and the few people who did lay eyes on it wouldn't believe it. Well, not to mention that the people who are there watching it live also don't seem to take it that seriously. Well, and that's that's the difference this time, which makes it feel kind of like a development from mm-hmm. what Marked Ones was going for. Now, Gen Z is so fucking aloof that they're presented (laughs) with incontrovertible evidence of the great beyond. And it's just a party trick. And they're just like, yo, it's just, yeah, it's just like demonic planking for them. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, they treat it as such. This party, the second gathering does go off the rails in a major way, but not immediately. First, I don't remember the guy's name. He's not a major player. Somebody gets strapped into the chair and winds up being satanically induced to make out with a dog, like a big, a little slobbery pit bull looking dog. So not that this matters a ton, but just for context, there's a bit of a love triangle. So there's Mia, who, as we said, is the main character. And then her best friend, who is Riley's older sister, her name is Jade. And Jade is dating this kid named Daniel, who I guess briefly dated Mia in a very, like, G-rated, PG sort of way some years back. So there's just a modicum of tension there that then kind of gets ramped up later for conflict's sake. But anyway, this kid Daniel, after he lets the demons in, the spirits, whatever, the first thing he does is, like, turn to his girlfriend and say... You make him soft. (laughs) As in between his legs. Yeah, right. And then he kind of turns his head 
toward Mia. And then he just sort of starts grunting and gibbering like he's, you know, horny. Yeah, and like lasciviously gyrating. And then the chair tips over, the dog trots over, and he goes for the dog. And it is a little disconcerting. Obviously, everyone is hooting and hollering and having a great time because our bro He's making is, out with a dog. Our bro is making out with a, with a dog. <laughs> uh, but from the demon's point of view, it really does seem like whatever is inhabiting this guy will just fuck what anything that moves and that's mm-hmm. kind of a kind of an alarming notion you know yeah. that he's been like possessed by the ghost of frank booth or something <laughs> so then he comes to and this i thought was interesting because i i expected him to snap out of it and then be like what 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 happened with like slobber dripping from his chin instead he says bro delete it delete that you got to delete that. So it's like he knows exactly what went down. No one has to tell him. And I think that's the correct way to go about it because the huh, what happened beat is sort of thankless in movies like this. And it's more horrifying to be locked behind your own eyes like you're in the sunken place and get out and see what your body is being induced to do but not be able to pump the brakes. So despite this being... Not much more than a TikTok video as far as the characters are concerned. And it being pretty low stakes in the grand scheme of things, certainly relative to what's about to happen. Nonetheless, it plants a few seeds that are sort of sinister. The next thing that happens is way more off the wall. Riley gets possessed and winds up flying all over the room. Not literally leaving the ground flight, but he's whipping hither and yon and he winds up taking a page out of the hereditary playbook and just smashing his face against whatever hard flat surface he can get in front of himself and that's a little been there done that for me you know i I preferred it in uh, the classroom in hereditary however what he does that made me squirm it was the significant squirm that i alluded to at the top of the episode he reaches up and pinches his own eyeball he damn near pops it like a peeled grave. It looks like he's trying to just pluck it right out of its socket. Yeah. And that's gross <laughs> and, and very good. <laughs> I liked that. <laughs> that was the one moment yeah. in the movie that got me. Ultimately, he is hospitalized because he has brained himself pretty bad. His head split open. Yeah. It's important to note here real quick before we move on. The first F of Riley's possession, which incidentally is only supposed to last for... 50 seconds that's the compromise they agree to because he is younger he appears to have been possessed by mia's mother oh that's right and she right she has a hand in prolonging it because well you know go figure because she She wants to wants more you know i didn't mean to i love you i would never want to hurt you i would never want to leave you on purpose then he just starts And he chokes for a while, and then that's when he starts braining himself. Yeah, and it's as as soon as um, I knew going in, the movie was going to be about an evil hand that can put you in touch with the spirits of the dead. And so as soon as it was established that Mia had a dead mom, that all writes itself, basically. Two and two makes four. Yeah, Yeah. right, exactly. (laughs) So you know that she's going to just open that door a little wider than she should, and then she and everyone else are going to pay the price for her curiosity and for her pining. And that's basically what happens. It's made more frustrating by the fact that this is not 
Beetlejuice. You know, this is not the fucking Frighteners or something. This is not a movie where there are good ghosts and bad ghosts. It seems like it's all bad juju on the other side. You know, she has a couple heart-to-hearts with something purporting to be her mother throughout the movie. And best case scenario, it is her mother. I'm inclined to doubt that. But even if that's the case, the baggage that those heart-to-hearts come with is much too horrible to be worth it. And and worst case scenario, which I find more plausible, it's just something impersonating her mother and she's getting literally nothing out of it. I think the scene back at her house during the climax pretty definitively says, at least for my money, that it's not her mom. Right. So it's so it's annoying watching her wade deeper and deeper into trouble to have this reconciliation with something that is just nakedly antagonistic. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's it's very come into my parlor, said the spider to the fly, but there's just no pretense of it. I don't know being anything other than what it is, and so I that that that, that as much as anything contributes to that feeling of thinness that I complained about at the very outset here. So once Riley winds up in the hospital, it becomes a bit of a muddle. There's a uh, more than one non-horror scene because basically for a while it seems like unless the hand is front and center we're in the safe zone there's a few scenes of mia talking to a friend of hers it all builds up to a conversation with her father that gets very tearful where he reads the mother's suicide note i can't remember at this point it's either shortly before or shortly after this where the thing pretending to be mia's mom says that it wasn't actually a suicide, that it was an accident or something. And obviously we take that with a circle of salt, so to speak. (laughs) Very good. Thank you. I feel like I'm alighting something important, but while I'm on the subject of the dad, the payoff there also irked me. Uh, It actually reminded me of The Bye Bye Man. And The Bye Bye Man is not the only movie to pull this trick, but it left a particularly bad taste in my mouth being The Bye Bye Man. (laughs) there's a violent altercation that ensues where mia is fending off demons and then mistakenly stabs her dad in the throat right after they have had this weepy moment coming together to mutually grieve the dead mom and then he sputters and has this kind of betrayed disbelieving look on his face and then he topples over yeah well The way that whole scene plays, and this is the scene that I was talking about a couple of minutes ago that I think seals the deal on her mom, quote-unquote, definitely not being her mom. Mm -hmm. This whole thing, the dad reads the suicide note to Mia, and then Mia goes in her room because I think she spots, like, the specter of her mom or something. It's like, oh, I'm going to go talk to her, basically. So she goes in her room. And then this thing purporting to be her mom basically says, he's lying. That's not your dad. And basically it's been brought to our attention somewhere in several scenes earlier where these spirits can impersonate other people and often do. And so while we in the audience are like, okay, that means this probably hasn't been your mom the whole time. You shouldn't trust a fucking word she says. In Mia's mind, that also makes her susceptible to basically 
any interaction she doesn't want to take at face value. Anything anybody says that she doesn't want to believe, she can just reject it out of hand as an evil spirit lying to her. Because ever since that very first slightly overextended possession she experienced, she's been seeing stuff. Yeah. It hasn't been tied to using the hand. It's just happening all the time. So when this spirit purporting to be her mother is telling her that wasn't your dad, that was a made-up suicide note, Mia is susceptible to that line of argument. And then the spirit doubles down by, I guess, bringing in a buddy to actually impersonate her dad, start pounding on the door, and then appear to burst in and start strangling her, all while her actual dad is in the other room dealing with the fact that he's just read his wife's suicide note to his daughter after two years of holding on to it. And then, yeah, once he starts hearing her, like, smash around her room, he goes in, breaks down the door, and then gets, yeah, Yeah. stabbed through the throat. Comes to the rescue and, yeah, gets a a knife to the jugular for his trouble. The demonic tag team felt sort of... I don't know. I I don't require that they be dealing with a singular intelligence all through the movie, but something about, you used the word buddy, and that's obviously kind of flippant, but that is sort of how it feels. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Like he he dialed a friend, like he called in a favor. And I don't know. Yeah, I got a tough one here, pal. I need, uh... (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to need an assist. Yeah, I I give them a little more credit just because there's a scene earlier on in the hospital where the teens are trying to figure out a way to set Riley free because he's already had another incident in the hospital where he tries to kill himself again. He's, he's just like Captain Concussion. That's like his sole means of self-destruction he will just bang his dome against absolutely anything puts a a sizable dent in in a tile wall at one point when he's hospitalized yeah and mia does some kind of well basically they use the hand in the hospital room she meets this little girl basically and then weirdly enough the little girl who's a spirit says to mia i let you in and then this transports Mia basically to the nether realm where she sees Riley face looking normal. So I guess it's his spirit being grabbed and pulled on and wrestled with by just a bunch of presumably spirits. Right. So the idea that they are legion is prepared for. And that I kind of like. They are just, I don't know, that vision was a little too... Keanu Reeves Constantine for me or just like a little too the further I don't know quite what it is but what I thought of actually a little bit was Jacob's Ladder but we were all we're in the same ballpark yeah well I like I think Jacob's Ladder is to me truly scary it gets into that like Silent Hill kind of territory mm-hmm. where it's just a, a matter of creature design I think if they're fucked up looking enough then that goes a long way but I, I, I don't know. I, I, I couldn't shake the feeling that the movie didn't know quite what to do with Riley after he winds up hooked up to IVs. Mia, after killing her dad, goes to claim him, I guess, to sort of liberate him from the hospital. And I didn't really understand. Obviously, she's pretty frazzled at this point, having just murdered her father without meaning to. 
Although it's not 100% clear to me that she realizes what she's done. That's true. Because after it happens, her reaction is relatively muted. And yeah, okay, it could be just a shock thing. But it also seems like after he starts gurgling, she just kind of like, yeah, well, that's just, I just beat the demon or the spirit, whatever. Time to get a move on. But yeah, it seems like her plan, and this is from instructions from not her mother, is to do to Riley what she couldn't do to the kangaroo which is put him out of his misery. Right. So she uh, wheels him in his wheelchair down to uh, what looks to be like an expressway off-ramp or something, cars speeding by, and she's going to tip him into the path of an oncoming car. Her other mother is whispering in her ear, goading her, almost in, in an echo of the I dare you bro spirit of the first act of the movie. You know, like the mother's kind of cajoling her into sending Riley into the great beyond. Instead, Mia herself leaps into traffic, is ragdolled over a windshield, and then we see her come to on the ground, and she stands up looking pretty raggedy, pretty bloodied, and it was just plain as day that she was deader than hell. Right. I mean, it was, she was like, she reminded me of the bicyclist near the end of The Sixth Sense in the scene where... Haley Joel Osment comes clean to Tony Collette about how he can see ghosts and he knows why there's a traffic jam because some unfortunate cyclist got obliterated a few blocks ahead and is now standing outside Tony Collette's window, if memory serves. Anyway, she seems to just be in a daze, but the writing's on the wall. She's departed, whether she knows it or not. Whether or not she was in denial about killing her dad, she's definitely in denial about this metamorphosis that she's gone through. She wanders in that stupor back into the hospital and then winds up just sort of being subsumed by darkness. She goes back into the further or whatever we're calling it. And the end of the movie is her being summoned during a talk to me ritual. She winds up sitting in the seat, strapped down, holding the hand of the person conducting the ritual so she is in a human body that is not her own and this is her fate now not really clear if all spirits are subject to this or if it's only people who die from hand related shenanigans but in any case it's not a very enviable fate and very much a monkey's paw thing for her a curiosity killed the cat thing but kind of a i don't know the ending made me soft more after the break cannot go for more than 90 seconds. Am I clear? What happens after 90 seconds? Don't want to stay. Light the candle to open the door. Blow it out to close it. Put your hand on it. Now say... Talk to me. Hello, listeners. It's Jim, here as always during the break to tell you some stuff you probably already know. Please follow us on Twitter at ShockDoctorsPod, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash ShockDoctorsPod, or check us out on Apple Podcasts. The podcast is also available on Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you've got an idea for a movie you'd like us to check out, Feel free to send us a DM on social media or email us at shockdoctorspod at gmail.com.
And now, back to the show. Still been saying stuff. You mean saying stuff? What if we open the door, but we didn't shut it? Oh my god, they followed us! I like him. They're not gonna stop. No, they're never gonna stop! And we're back. So, the thing that kind of frustrates me about the ending, I don't think it left me quite as soft as it left you, but uh, much of the movie, much of the runtime, whenever they talk about, they, they say this relatively early on, that if you die when they're in you, i.e. the spirits, they get to keep you forever. And... This idea is repeated at least half a dozen times throughout the film. And so even in her overwrought kind of emotion-addled state, why Mia thinks the solution to the Riley problem is just to kill him is kind of beyond me. And I don't know why that isn't a giant flashing neon sign in her brain like, hey... This thing that's been purporting to be my mom just told me to kill Riley, which would leave him in thrall to the spirits forever. Maybe she's not who she says she is. Right. Well, and it's those, like, you're not my real mother confrontations are old as dirt in movies like this. And it's the boring flip side of the all-around boring coin of the mom stuff you expect that coin to flip at some point where it's very predictable the way all of the mom business plays out with mia getting further and further in over her head just because she wants to have her mom back and then you're expecting at some point her to come to her senses and have that kind of cathartic you're not my mom thing and in a way i'm glad that doesn't happen because it is so boring but the lead up to it is not fresh in and of itself so it just feels kind of like the obvious payoff is missing and then nothing comes to take its place i don't know again it's thin it's just a little a little thin well and you can make the argument that mia has eventually figured it out because ultimately she does not throw riley into traffic she throws herself into traffic and maybe she's been playing possum the whole time. But I also think there's a chance that Mia was convinced that this was her mother right up until the very moment where she hurled herself into traffic. Because yeah. while the spirit is hovering over her shoulder and saying, like, you're doing the right thing. I'm going to take care of Riley after he's gone, I promise. She slips up right at the end. She says something along the lines of, he's going to be safe with us. Yes. The plural, I think, is very Legion. weighty here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as opposed to me. Up until this point, she's talked about this line of argument before, a couple times earlier, including in the scene in the house immediately prior to Mia stabbing her dad, where she's like, I'm going to take care of Riley once he's dead and you've released him. I'm going to watch over him in the afterlife. But 
all the other times she's managed to use the singular, <laughs> the, the first person singular, yeah. and then it becomes the plural right at the end. And there's no big overwrought, like, close-up of Mia's eyes going wide or something, like some kind of really <laughs> obvious yeah. revelation. What did you just say? <laughs> <laughs> Did you say us? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, either the revelation hits her right then, or she was playing possum the whole time, which I guess is the way to get Mia as a character to not be brain dead and gullible while also avoiding the hackneyed, you're not my mom stuff. Yeah, I mean, but... she still does strike me as pretty guileless from start to finish, which is fine enough. She's in high school, but it doesn't make her, you know, a very compelling presence. I, I hesitate right. to say that she's like a lackluster protagonist, because I don't think that protagonists need to be strong people per se. They can yeah. be weak-willed or have any number of frailties. That's fine. But she is just kind of a babe in the woods for a lot of this and she's cut off from her other friends because she is seeing shit as you've pointed out and does kind of not believe her own eyes it's basically the not mom's whole thing is don't believe your lying eyes and she doesn't she just buys it hook line and sinker which is i don't know disappointing i thought yeah well and the other thing that drives her away from her friends so it's it's two things really well, she also takes the blame, perhaps rightfully, for Riley being in the position that he's in. Well, yeah, because basically Jade says, no, Riley, you're not doing it. And then Jade leaves the room for a minute and Riley's still kind of begging Mia like, hey, hey, please let me do this just for a little bit. Come on, come on. And then Mia kind of gives him permission. And then the other teens are just like, yeah, OK, fine. <laughs> what do we care, basically? And their mother, Jade and Riley's mother, played incidentally by Miranda Otto. Oh, I knew well, I recognized this is, her. It's a ways down from being Eowyn, I think. Well, kind it's... Kind of a, a thankless mother role. Not as far down as fucking Denethor in, what, oh, Conjuring well. <laughs> 4 or 5 or whatever well, it was. Three. There, there's only been three so far. Oh, well, I, I I always lump in the Annabelle movie where the Warrens play a supporting oh, role. But you're right. That, that didn't, That's true. That didn't have Conjuring but, in the uh, title. Yeah, you're right. It's not quite as bad as, I have chicken shit on my hands. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, mom sort of, even though she has a soft spot for Mia as her kid's longtime friend, she also is somewhat wary of her because she knows that since her mom died, she's had a rough go of it and maybe she's been into drugs. And that's what she thinks happened to Riley for a long stretch is that Mia gave him some drugs and then he wigged the fuck out because of the drugs and that's why he did what he did. And then, of course, she comes to find out, yeah, his tox screen was negative or whatever. It wasn't drugs. Yeah, but his demon quotient was off the charts. <laughs> the, the demonometer was just going haywire. Just ding, 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 ding. I'll tell you what, I don't like he'll be safe. He'll be safe with us is a good line just on the face of it. However, I don't like it as a failure of the mother's poker face. It would work better for me if she shoved the kid into traffic 
And then the mother said, don't worry, he'll be safe with us. Oh, fuck. Is a um, deliberate dropping of the, yes, yeah. Because so, and I think this is the last time I'll bring up the Exorcist, at least in this episode. Because Lord knows I do go on and on about it. I really just can't say enough nice things about the way that evil is personified in that movie. You know, in the person of Linda Blair and Mercedes McCambridge, and as characterized by William Peter Blatty, it is just like a consummately very entertaining, very real seeming demonic entity the demon the devil if that's what it is pazuzu as he later came to be known the demon and the priests in that movie are constantly playing 5d chess you know and it's not always clear what's a poker face and what isn't i always think of the priests splashing holy water or actually it's just tap water but they claim that it's holy water on Mm -hmm. uh reagan and oh it burns it burns and they take that as proof that it's not actual demonic possession because a real demon would know the difference now did the demon play along so that the priests would lose interest and it would have reagan all to itself that's kind of maybe the most obvious reading but it's not impossible that even demons are not immune from the placebo effect And it's not really clear why that plays out the way it does, who's conning who, and that's so much more rich than just a straightforward slip of the tongue, like what we get at the pivotal moment of the climax Mm -hmm. of this movie, us instead of me. There's only one way to read that, and obviously, as I always say, Exorcist is the gold standard, but it's a standard to aspire to. It's always lauded has been since 1973 for having this kind of documentary realism to it. And I think that so much of that, a lot of it is in the filmmaking, of course, but some of it is just in the ambiguity of what you're looking at. It's as complicated much of the time as real life. It's hard to say why things happen the way they do some of the time in that movie even some of the standout moments you know like the most quoted the most reference scenes are sort of mired in that to the movie's benefit yeah it's not cut and dry it's true mia is being separated from her friends as i was saying by two things one jade and her mom both for slightly differing reasons and to differing degrees kind of hold Mia responsible. And so they tell her to stay away from the hospital. They don't really talk to her for a while. And two, this kid, Daniel, Jade's boyfriend, Mia's kind of ex with whom the sexual tension was amped up by this slavering possession interlude. Mm -hmm. Mia after kind of running out of Riley's hospital room, is kind of tracked down by Daniel, who offers to give her a ride home, and then she talks him into staying overnight. And this is a scene we alighted. After they have their kind of heart-to-heart, they go to sleep, sleeping foot-to-head for minimal cuddling potential, I guess. Mia has a haunting experience you know encounters some more spirits and this scene has very much that tale of two sisters flavor i'm always harping on about she kind of hears a little something and then sort of stares into a dark corner 
of her bedroom and we can just kind of barely see the outline of someone or something and the movie lingers on it for a while and this was the most spooked that i got uh-huh. and frankly i would have preferred it if they dragged it out for another like 60 to 90 seconds like they do in that scene in yes. tale of two sisters mm-hmm. but that got to me and then they kind of let some of the air out of that because at the end of the day, just kind of uh, dumpy and slightly decomposed or burned or something, woman comes out and starts sucking on Daniel's foot. Yeah, right. And then he wakes up and thinks that it was Mia. I completely forgot about well, that. Well, it was Mia. Right. Also, after it cuts out of Mia's perspective, we find Mia sucking on his foot. So, yeah, that's another thing that's kind of keeping her separated from her friends. Yeah, I don't know. As I said, the first half of that scene definitely worked for me a lot better than the latter half. Yeah, it does seem like it kind of, not to put too fine a point on it, shoots itself in the foot after, you know. <laughs> or to put an even finer point on it, the scene puts its foot in its mouth. Then, all right. You set him up, I knock him down, or, you know, vice versa. Well played. Right, exactly. Um, <laughs> I mean, again, it's effective for sort of marooning Mia in the midst of her own grief and panic and paranoia, but at the end of the day, the result of that is Mia just being a little too gullible when it comes to what the spirits are saying to her. Yeah, I mean, that that's Mia all over. I think that broadly speaking the scares are a little lackluster or you know outside of the self-harm show which is much of the movie yeah the filmmakers aren't really sure where to go with the possessions for the most part we just get people cracking their own heads open people trying to pop their eyeballs like pimples which did get me (laughs) but these characters being dangerous to themselves can make you squirm but it's sort of limited. It doesn't go for broke the way that the sadness did, which is not necessarily a bad thing because the sadness was in pretty bad taste. Correct. (laughs) (laughs) But I would have liked to have seen it go a bit further. I think even The Exorcist in the so-called crucifix masturbation scene is Uh more hardcore than anything in this movie. I went into The Exorcist as like a teenager having heard the phrase crucifix masturbation scene and then being kind of gobsmacked when I realized that it was actually genital mutilation, you know, it was was in in no way masturbatory, you know, I mean, the demon is saying, let Jesus fuck you, but it is what it is. It's a, it's incontrovertible. And I think the let Jesus fuck you thing. I mean, that is also self-harm. It's kind of the only significant instance of reagan like severely wounding herself in that movie or being made Mm -hmm. to do so mostly she's just taunting people and making drawers open by themselves and you know (laughs) off screen throwing people out of windows when no one's looking which is sort of creepier than just hurtling all over the place braining yourself against the nearest solid object i don't know I, i think that let jesus fuck you is so much more pointed than anything that happens in this movie it's sacrilegious obviously but it it seems like there's an angle there there's a demonic intent behind it i've made a complete and utter liar of myself bringing the exorcist back into this 
uh, for <laughs> what I trust will be the final time. I just didn't get that feeling of personality or agency or intent from the spirits in this movie. And they don't have to be satanic. Obviously, if they're satanic, overtly so, and they're at war with God, that gives them a certain M.O., that you can have some fun with and that can be very hokey or on rare occasions as in the exorcist it can actually work these spirits just are a little bit more listless and you know if they'd been totally unknowable that could have been something the spirits in pulse are sort of like that at the very end of pulse the japanese one needless to say you find out that really their animating principle is that death is just unspeakably lonely, that they just want to be back among the living, but that has horrible implications for humanity. So the world is overrun with death and malaise, and the spirits still seem sorrowful and, and alone. You never see two of them at the same time. They are definitely not buddying up in order to you know, mindfuck someone in tandem with one another. No. Uh, it just doesn't work that way. And that's just sort of cosmically spooky in a way that this movie doesn't even hint at. So I could point to better examples of this kind of thing all day long. That's what the recommendations are for, so I can table that for now. Suffice to say, I was just left feeling a little hollow. I do like the hand. I will say that the hand itself is kind of charming. I like the strange runic markings on it whatever the writing is supposed to be i like that it is both corpsey and kind of inanimate looking kind of plasticine mm -hmm. it just sort of it's hokey in a good way it reminds me of when i was a kid my family had this halloween candy bowl this big orange bowl with a rubbery kind of green hand sticking out of it poised over the candy and it had a sure. little motor in it and I think it was motion-activated, died after like a year, but for a few months, you know, for like one or two Halloweens, trick-or-treaters stick their hand into the bowl. You know, you set it on the porch with a sign that says, help yourself or something. They go for the candy, and the hand reaches down, and it's supposed to grab them. The hand in this movie reminded me of that, and it did defang it to a certain extent, but I liked that. It was Halloween-ish, and I go for that sort of thing. Yeah. I don't know if that makes any sense at all, or if it's just rooted in a, a specific childhood memory. But I think it is, just as a visual, it, it does have that going for it, that sort of Halloweenishness. Yeah. Going back to the self-harm stuff, obviously there's a certain amount of shock value when Riley starts sort of aggressively braining himself. And there's one shot in that sequence that I liked, it's the close-up of his face from above, right before he's about to give himself what appears to be a finishing blow. Yeah, and Jade, I think is the name, she sticks her hand in to soften the impact and probably saves his life. Right. His face is sort of arrestingly fucked up in that close-up, and that looks good. But overall, I agree with you that it's jarring, but it's not tense per yeah. se, or let alone scary. That is a good shot, credit where it's due. I like the kind of, he has almost like a wistful smile on his face in that shot, which you can barely make out because his face has been so badly pulped. But to the yeah. extent that you can read emotion on it, 
he looks like he's savoring this anticipatory moment right before he cracks his head open like a melon. Right. Now, I think the problem is when we watch this stuff happening, we're not grounded in Riley's perspective or in the case of other self-harming incidents in the perspective of whoever's hurting themselves. I mean, we don't see Mia really hurt herself prior to obviously killing herself, you know, throwing herself in front of traffic, but we don't see her doing something else to herself in the lead up to that. And that can be super hacky. Don't get me wrong. I don't need a the grudge 2020. Let me chop off my own fingers unwittingly kind of thing. But I think there is a way that if you were grounded in a particular character's perspective and you could feel the panic of the character themselves stuck inside their own body, unable to control what they're doing because they're possessed and the demon's about to get them to do something. The filmmakers could have imparted in a sequence like that the oh shit, oh fuck, oh shit, no, no sort of feeling that you might experience if you were put in that position, and that could have been scary. Yeah. But instead we just sort of see it from the outside, and again, yeah, it's jarring, and it's at least somewhat memorable to look at, but it's not tense, it's not thrilling in any real way, and it's not scary. I almost wish, and this gets you even further from the POV of the afflicted person, but if the movie's going to be shot that way anyway, you might as well commit to the bit, and uh, perhaps even zoom further out. Not in character for me to say this or to propose this course correction because we were awash for a time in desktop horror movies or, or there was a phrase i can't remember what they were called screen life screen life thank you your unfriended and so on i would not want this whole movie to be shot that way and in fact doing any amount of it that way might have been a mistake but there's a chance that injecting a certain amount of screen life into this movie might have worked to its advantage because I'm thinking more of we're all going to the World's Fair, where mm -hmm. in a way it would be scarier to watch a YouTube video of a talk to me ritual that has 11 views. You know, let's say you're the 12th person who has ever watched this, and it turns out that it's sincerely fucked up and like it, it goes off the rails and you close the tab. What the fuck did I just watch? We're all going to the World's Fair is so adept in the way that it evokes that alienated feeling that you get on the internet. And this movie is about TikTok to an extent. You know, it's steeped in that, at least at the beginning. Uh, and then it gets away from it. Basically, once Riley concusses himself a dozen times over, everyone puts their fucking cell phones away and they never come back out again, which is as it should be. That's a normal reaction to have. Mm -hmm. However, and I'm not even saying that you need to satirize TikTok because I think that's sort of beyond parody, but I think that it wouldn't have to be a satirical bent so much, but just an extra membrane. If more of this stuff was being filtered through screens and kind of mitigated, by devices 
then it might I, I i really liked wounds i think wounds is an underrated movie and most of the most fucked up stuff that happens in wounds happens in grainy videos on a cell phone sure yeah and and i think that that's just a very neat way to smuggle paranormal stuff into fiction which is otherwise more or less grounded in reality if you just get a little glimpse of something especially if technology if there is a tissue of technology between you and the paranormal thing, then that creates a certain amount of plausible deniability and this what-if kind of feeling. Like, did I actually see that? Was it doctored? Was my mind playing tricks on me? Is it an ARG? <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, there's a little bit of that. Obviously, it's not the same because it's not the internet. It's not online, but there's a little bit of that in Sinister with the the super eight videos right and that's another reason why that movie's pretty good lousy sequel notwithstanding and i just think because i keep using the word thin i just i just felt like talk to me did not have enough going on and i think that if you had front loaded more of the stuff that i'm describing and that had taken up the bulk of the first act even the first 50 percent of the movie you know, you still introduce Mia at the same moment that she's introduced. Everything plays out the way it does, but you just have this additional kind of crossfire of this TikTok chatter that would beef it up a little bit. And then you could maybe postpone the Riley possession until closer to the midpoint of the movie. And then you would have less time to kill and you could be a little more lean and mean from there until the finish line. And then you could maybe dispense with the screen life stuff maybe bring back a little taste of it right at the end that i think is not to say that the movie needs padding but i think you could take out a bunch of what's already in there and replace it with some of that techno babble and it would be a little bit well i was gonna say a little more of the moment but i don't know maybe people are burnt out on unfriended type stuff maybe that would date it more than anything it would be a risk but in my mind's eye it would it's already paying off but that's my prerogative that's my luxury as as you know an armchair quarterback i think it would uh it would be worth the gamble to see if you because i think if if it did pay off you would have a movie that was a little meatier and more mysterious sure last thing before we proceed to recommendations and i have not saved the best for last this is not even worth bringing up at all but did i or did i not name drop crazy frog within the last episode or two or three i think it was when we were riffing on novelty songs that could replace tiny tim in the insidious franchise you know i think that i i I said or you said one of us said that tiny tim is no more or less frightening than crazy frog or, yeah. or badger, badger, badger. You said crazy frog. I said badger, badger, badger. Okay, that's what I thought. There is a not insignificant amount of crazy frog in this movie, unless my ears were deceiving me. And I just wasn't prepared to hear that in 2023. I did not know that there had been, is it like a trending TikTok audio or something? Has there been a resurgence? So I, I felt like, because I, I just pulled that totally out of thin air. And now I feel like I've, you manifested it. Yeah, like I, like I've shaken hands with a cadaverous, you know, <laughs> evil hand that has given me the gift of prophecy. So that was that was kind of funny, and I have nothing else to say on it. As for <laughs> recommendations, I'm going to recommend an Aussie horror thriller 
from the 70s, early 70s, called Wake and Fright, for no other reason than that it features a bunch of slain kangaroos. <laughs> Fair warning, the kangaroos are massacred for real in that movie. The filmmakers tagged along on a drunken kangaroo hunt. This is the production story, anyway. It's maybe inflected with a little bit of legend and a little bit of hearsay, but that's usually the best you can do when a movie's been around for 50-plus years. The story is that the crew was so sickened by what they were seeing because the kangaroo hunters were so soused that they were not clean kills, you know. There's shots in the movie of kangaroos, like, hopping around, mortally wounded but not yet dead, that are pretty ghastly, pretty grisly. And supposedly the crew put a stop to it by sabotaging the lights by claiming that they ran out of film prematurely or something. They found a way to uh, bring it to a premature end. But it, the footage is in the movie, regardless. And so if animal abuse is something that you don't truck with, that's a movie that should not go on your to-do list. <laughs> Same as Cannibal right. Holocaust or any movie like that that uses actual animal death and mutilation to generate a feeling of unease and a feeling of real, unforced, like, documentary peril. There are other ways to do it. You know, no animal should be harmed in the making of a movie. So that's just a content warning that I feel I have to issue. But great flick, all the same. And I feel like I recommended it not that long ago. As I'm preparing to give you the elevator pitch, I feel like I'm getting deja vu. But I don't think I talked about the kangaroo scene last time You around. didn't, but you have recommended it. I don't know how recent it was, but you yeah, have recommended it at some point. can't imagine what review it would have been. I feel like it was a recent one. In any case, apparently I did not feel the need to slap that content warning on it last time, but I did this time. <laughs> so hopefully you didn't take my advice <laughs> or you waited to. Now you've got the full picture. You're going in with all the facts. I shouldn't just double down on it. What's another movie with a dead kangaroo? Dude, I'm about to double down myself, so <laughs> just feel free to roll with it. All right, if I think of another one, I'll spit it out, but I may or may not take her away. So uh, I'm going to recommend Flatliners again. All right. <laughs> because in that movie, and again, if you missed out on the episode or episodes this might be the third time i've recommended it i don't know that movie's stuck in my brain like a burr forever it follows these five medical students who experiment with death they stop each other's hearts for a certain prescribed period of time and the person who's dead temporarily kind of has these experiences of the afterlife purportedly and they keep pushing the envelope further and further, extending the period of heart stoppage longer and longer. And they start experiencing spooky shit, and sometimes it feels like stuff has come back with them. And that's the tying factor here, the connecting tissue with Talk To Me. Uh, it's not a possession thing as such, but in terms of Mia seeing shit periodically, even when she's not fucking with the hand, it's kind of that same stuff. And Flatliners, as I've said before, it's a very enjoyable flick. 1990, and like films from the early 90s, it could just as easily have been made in the mid to late 80s. Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's all... Schumacher, too, so those and lines are even blurrier than they would be with you know, a lot of filmmakers. And so if you like the sort of 80s film aesthetic, 
by all means, Flatliners is worth checking out. Other than that, there's possession movies galore that we've recommended on multiple different episodes. I don't feel the need to rehash any of those. I've got one. British making me look bad from the 70s (laughs) called the stone tape the idea is that ghosts are imprinted in the brickwork all around us in the dirt in the walls and the stone tape it's like a ghost a person's environment records an imprint of their spirit and that's harmless unless you have the technology with which to hear the recording and play it back, which is the technology that the characters in the movie, these scientists, these paranormal experts, are developing and experimenting with. So it's very straightforward, very no must, no fuss. It's got a TV budget. But the whole movie is just them tinkering with their machine, trying to establish contact, almost more in the manner of like a Close Encounters kind of movie where they're trying to reach out in this very heady kind of science-minded way. They're trying to establish contact, not with the mothership, but with the dearly departed. The and beyond. It's not, yeah, in, in, yeah, the, in the unknown in one sense or another. And it's got a very eerie ending where the curtain is pulled back and one of the characters is just kind of flung into the abyss. But it's, it's basically exactly what you expect, no more, no less. But I, I found it effective, and it has a, a reputation more so across the pond than here. It played on TV a bunch, I'm given to understand, over in the UK. And so a lot of horror aficionados over there are very used to singing its praises, but it's a little less well-known in these parts. So the stone tape, I think that it preserves that kind of facelessness that i like in movies about evil ghosts that feeling that their their motives are really indecipherable and unknowable to us pulse does that well stone tape does it rather well so do seek that one out should be easy to come by i'm pretty sure i watched it on youtube all right well we've given the embalmed hands to some italians i think (laughs) I think that's what happens at the end of this movie. So, yeah, I, I think. What did what did the did the prologue meaningfully intersect? Was that mentioned? Like, did they? I assume the guy had a run in with the hand. The guy who. Uh, oh yeah, it. no. I when you were talking about that, I meant to bring that back up. We find out past the midpoint of the movie that the two kind of ringleaders, whose names I don't remember because they don't matter all that much but the ones who are kind of promulgating this party game, they got the hand from, what's his name, Duckett? They got the hand from him. And then there's even a scene where they track down the guy's brother. I guess his stabbing was not fatal. Uh-huh. Even though it seemed to, like, plunge a big knife into his chest. But I guess, you know, it was just a, a soft, fleshy part. But they they track him down, and they try and get him to help, and he basically says, how about you just stop using the hand to fuck up people's lives, and now leave me alone. So yeah, it does come back around. I only half remember that, but okay, that's fine. It's an effective enough opener, even if it was totally disconnected. It's enough to figure that the the hand has left a trail of destruction in its wake. That's basically the long and the short of it. I would not mind seeing the hand return. Like I said, I find the hand charming. I just hope that if there's a sequel, that whatever the hand channels next time out 
is a little saucier. Just has a little something extra. Yeah. Well, until next time, I'm Jim Smith. And I'm Matt Jaron Daisy. And we are the Shock Doctors. We'll see you later. As always, we have some acknowledgments. Our music was composed by Will Connor. Audio for the bumpers was taken from Talk To Me Official Trailer HD A24, uploaded by A24. All rights reserved. Our next episode will be up on Sunday, August 20th, and we get to see what really happened on Dracula's journey to London in The Last Voyage of the Demeter. See you then. Thank you.